Amen. Um, am I on? We on? <laughs> Good morning. Hey, we are on. Um, would you mind turning me down just a little bit? Would that be okay? Um, sorry. It's, uh, well, good morning. Welcome to Broadlands. Glad to have everybody here this morning. Um, and it's uh, a privilege of mine to be able to speak in Wallace's absence this morning. Um, and I uh, see my note to start my timer. Um, I don't want to keep you here until four, but I just might. <laughs> no. um, but uh, good morning. I, I'm going to be speaking this morning, um, as the bulletin says, on it's a great mystery. And, um, you know, Paul talks about in Ephesians 5.32, he says, he's talking about marriage, and he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And, I mean, it's clear from this that marriage has a deeper significance than just two people standing before their friends and family and getting up and saying, you know, do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. And okay, we're married. Um, God's communicating that there's something deeper going on. Um, and, and I believe it's really I mean, what he tells us, right? It's about Christ and the church. And, and he's giving us this picture where he's talking about our relationship with Christ. But really, they, for me, there's a focus on, like, this is God's view of us, Jesus's view of us and his, his passion for us, his anticipation, his desire. Um, and, and again, he says it's a profound mystery. And, I mean, mystery implies, like, this is not easy to come by, right? I mean, it's going to take some work on our part to understand what God is saying here. Um, and, and God tells us in Hebrews eleven six, he said, he rewards those who seek him. You know, I think some translations say the, those who earnestly seek him. Right, and Jesus talks about, there are a couple of parables where Jesus talks about searching out, right? There's the, the buried treasure where the guy finds this treasure and he goes and sells everything he has so that he can have this treasure in his field. And, and a merchant who's looking for uh, precious pearls and he finds one and sells everything he has because he wants that, right? And it's a picture of what God wants us to do with him and with his word. Um, and, and so with that, like, that's what... Like I'm trying to do this morning, and, and uh, but with that, let me just open us in prayer. Oh, dear God, I just, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, Lord, you make yourself available to us. You make yourself known to us. Lord, I pray that you would shed your light this morning on this mystery that you tell us about. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that fills us with a desire for you and leaves us wanting more. God, bring us into your presence this morning and let us know your love and tenderness towards us. And Lord, I pray that I would honor you with everything that comes out of my mouth, that I would honor your word, Father, that you would accomplish your purpose in us this morning. Amen. Um, so I have to confess the title is a little bit misleading this morning. Um, it's, it, it, we're not talking about marriage, even though marriage is going to be a big part of what we're talking about. We're actually going to be talking about sex, but we're not talking about sex. We're talking about Christ and our relationship with him because it's this mystery, right? But there's very much this piece of sex that is throughout the scriptures that God is communicating something to us about our relationship with him. Um, and, and so I, I hope to kind of uncover some of what God is saying here. And um, you have to bear with me. I mean, this is 
um, a little bit uncomfortable in some respects, but um, it's a little bit easier talking to y'all, talk to the youth about sex or even something remotely close to sex, and they all start snickering and, you know, burying their face in their hands or pillows. And um, so anyway, but like, I want to just press into what God has to say in his word and as it relates to his relationship with us. And Wallace spoke last week about how big our God is, right? And one of the things that was stirring in my heart in preparing for this message and, and tied in with his message is how multifaceted our God is, right? Like we all, God reveals himself to us in, in several different ways, right? And um, in the church, like one of them, we know God as God, right? He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He sits on his throne. He's going to judge the world. And, and like, we understand that and we're comfortable. We know that about God. We sing songs about it. It's in the scripture, right? And you have Psalms where David, who fearing for his life, running for his life from Saul, he talks about God as my, my savior, my redeemer, my rock, my fortress, right? And we've all had experiences where we've needed God to show up to deliver us from something, right? And it's part of our interaction with God is we call to him for rescue, right? And there's God as creator, right? He created this earth. He created everything in it. And I believe it's Psalm 19 that says the heavens declare the glory of God, right? And I mean, art is a pale comparison to what God has done. And we've all seen his beauty, recognized his beauty in his creation and marveled at it. And we talk about God as our father, right? Our father who art in heaven. And, and God communicates his love as a father to us. And he, he, um, our provider, our caretaker, the shepherd that goes after the one that is lost, right? And, and all of those, I think they're comfortable in a certain sense. But have you ever thought about God as your lover? I, like for me, that's not really part of my interaction with God. I don't think in those terms. And, you know, it's, I, I, and I don't know really why, but, um, uh, Isaiah 62 5 says for as a young man marries a young woman so shall your sons marry you and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you and, excuse me like God loves us you know I, I've mentioned before when I married Sophie and that eager expectation of her walking down the aisle to be with me to start our life together. And that's how God views each and every one of us. That's his desire for us. <clears throat> and so, and it, there's an element to, I, I think, I, even in the last song we sang, like talking about how precious Jesus is and, and the lover of my soul. But even there, it's talking about like the, more of a father-son relationship or a father-daughter relationship or a friend, right? And, and that's good, but it doesn't get to the level of intimacy that I believe God intends in a marriage and what he communicates to us in that, in that relationship. Um, and so th this message all started a few weeks back. Um, <sighs> I feel like, Wallace, I need the context so you all understand, but... Um, so I've, my relationship with the Lord, I hate to say, is very transactional in a lot of ways. Um, I, I've, I've been very disciplined, I, and I believe this is just like God has p 
pass this down through Wallace to me of just, like, I spend time in the Word. I get up in the morning, I read the Scriptures, but there is very much a sense of, like, I get up, I read the Scriptures, and, and I move on. And, and I, I don't, I mean, I engage with God, and, and I want, but there, it's like, it's like a compartment, right? And maybe this is just part of me as a guy. It's, you know, I take care of that task and then I move on. But there's even like my relationship with my boss at work. And um, unfortunately, he's not my boss anymore. But like, I've got a good relationship with my boss. We get along well. I really, I, he's one of the best bosses I've worked for. Really enjoyed having him. And he puts up with me and seems to enjoy having me around. And, but I know my job. I know what I need to do. I know how to do it. And we don't talk a whole lot, you know? I mean, we have a morning stand-up where we check in, you know, status, status report, this is what's going on, this is what I'm working on, but all right, we'll see you later. And I go off and I do my thing. And the, the honesty is, like, that kind of defines my relationship with the Lord as well. I check in in the morning, I get my marching orders, and I go. And, and I, I really felt this pull from the Lord. Um, I, I don't know if conviction is the right word, but really just a pull from God of engage with me. Make me a part of your day. Walk with me, right? I mean, God, God tells us to walk with him. And, and so, like, I know none of you all are like this, but I, I have a tendency to just get on my phone every time I've got 30 seconds of downtime, right? I mean, it's almost like a reflex. I, I get on the elevator and I'm standing, well, pull, pull out my phone, and I'm not really on social media, but there's always something to distract me, right? And I, and I just felt this pull and like, you know, okay, God, well, instead of just doing nothing, like um, my wife pointed me to, there's a, a devotional called Daily Light. And if you're not familiar with it, um, this woman who wrote it, she basically just grabs verses from throughout the Bible that are centered on a theme and she puts the verses in there. And so it's literally just reading the word, but all centered on a theme, and there's a morning and an evening. And so I started trying to, trying to adopt this habit of, like, if I've got the time, let me pull that out, and let me at least read God's word and connect with him through the day. And this one morning, I pull it out, and I'm reading it, and the, the first verse was Song of Solomon 2.6. It says, His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. And, I, I mean, that... Song of Solomon is a book about sex and marriage, right? I mean, just on the surface, that's, it's uh, presumably Solomon and one of his thousand women, um, but maybe the chief one, I don't know. But anyway, um, it, it's, it, he and she are declaring their love, their desire, and their enjoyment of one another, right? And I mean, and I read this, and I think most of us can understand that embrace of a lover, right? And, and I read it, and immediately, that's what flashes through my mind, that experience, and the feelings associated with that experience. And, I mean, you know how this happens, right? You, you like, you have this, and um, it's just a flash in the mind, and all of that happens in a split second. And then I heard God say to me, that's exactly the way I feel about you. And I have to confess, like, I mean, it undid me. Like, I, I literally was just like, oh. I, and I don't know what to do with that, but I'm deeply attracted to it, right? I, I, like, I'm drawn in response to that word. 
And, and so, like, literally that moment, it, I started like, okay, God, tell me more. Like, flesh this out for me. What, what are you saying? What does that mean? Right? And, and there's an element of, I don't think this is necessarily unique, but there's an element of sexual brokenness that it's hard for me to bridge the gap between sexuality and spirituality. Um, but that moment really started this process of like, okay, God, unpack this for me. And so that's, that's what I'm talking about this morning. And it's sex and marriage and nakedness and shame as it's in the scripture and what it tells us about our relationship with God. And I really believe that this is central to God's message to us. I mean, like it's throughout scripture, right? There's, um, you have marriage at the beginning of Genesis, like literally in Genesis 1, and you have marriage at the end of Revelation, right? And so it's bookended and then spoken of throughout Scripture, so it's obviously important. And again, he talks about it as a profound mystery, and I find this particularly fascinating, but all of the idolatry that they talk about in the Old Testament, it's all very sexual in nature, right? And and so there's there's something with that, and, and prostitution was a big part of it as well. Um, but I, le- I believe it's central to understanding this revelation of Christ and the church and, and our relationship with him. So it, looking at Genesis 1, again, God starts this creation story, and, and he, he opens up, he creates the earth and the heavens and everything in it, creates the animals and you know, mountains, rivers, and valleys, and and all of this, and, and at the end of every day of his creation, he steps back, and he's like, man, that's good, right? And, and I mean, and, and it's a poetic book, right? But there is a, there is, I, I believe there is a rejoicing from God in his creation, and, and then it gets to the sixth day where God creates man, and it's, it says in verses 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the culmination of God's creative act, and dare I say, the climax, births humanity, births Adam and Eve. And immediately after creating, he gives them sex and marriage as a part of their relationship. Right? In, in Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. And then in, in 2.24 and 25, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. And in my reading of scripture, I don't think Genesis 1 and 2 are linear in time. Um, I, we have a tendency to read linearly, but... Um, I don't think that he could say, be fruitful and multiply in chapter one, but Eve wasn't created until chapter two. So clearly things are out of order. But so I, I really believe that as a part of the, like the final thing of his creative process, his creation act was he gave them sex and marriage. And he sit, sits back and he goes, man, that is excellent. Right, and, and the Bible uses the term very good, which is just pretty passe. Um, but, but the words used are quite literally, exceedingly, abundantly, good, rich, and excellent. Right, I mean, there is an exaltation in this creative act. Um, 
And, and again, the last time I talked, we talked about the types of Christ in the Bible, right? Where there's something that, that happens in the Bible and it points to Christ. It points to a truth about him. And, and this setup in Genesis 1 and 2, it's a type of Christ, right? Um, and, and we get clarification of that in 1 Corinthians six seventeen, where Paul is talking about the two. He quotes um, Genesis 2. Um, it says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, right? So the, the marriage union is a physical representation of the spiritual truth that occurs when we come to faith in Christ. And, and what Paul is talking about, it's all in the context of sex. He's talking about like not being joined together with a prostitute, not engaging in sexual immorality, and in verses 15 and 16, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And that word joined, where he's talking about being joined with a prostitute, it's like also glue, stick, or cleave, which I mean, those are the same, that's the same meaning of what God said with, with like the two become one flesh and a father, a man shall leave his wife. And uh, the King James, I believe, uses the word cleave to his wife, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And if I, if I'm reading this correctly, sex is what binds the man and the woman. Again, it's not just that Sophie and I got up in front of our friends and family and said, yes, I do. Right, the union create the union between a couple is through the sexual relationship, which puts a bit of a spin on our relationship and intimacy with the Lord. Um, and, and in Genesis two twenty five, it's interesting to me that God created man and woman, and they were naked and they knew no shame. And I find myself asking, like, God, why did you make them naked? I mean, there's a very it's very impractical, right? Like, I've done landscaping. I enjoy having clothes on when I work in the garden. And, and there's even an element of like, I mean, I know an, most animals don't wear clothes, but um, there's even an element of like, I, I don't know. I just we'll leave that there. But, but God created mankind in this state of nakedness, and that's how they existed until the fall, right? And, and, God interacted with them in that, right? Like after the fall, after they sinned, God came looking for Adam and Eve. And, and it says, um, I don't know. Oh, it says they heard and recognized the sound of God in the garden. And, and we don't recognize what we're unfamiliar with, right? So like God was clearly pl- present in the garden with them in the midst of their nakedness. But, and, and I'm not trying to make too much out of this, but I, I think there's something there. And like, in just like the metaphorical sense, right? Our clothing covers us. It shields, it shields us from one another. And, and there's, there's a picture of where clothing covers us and it hides us, right? Which then, like, that's a barrier to intimacy. And, and there's an element of like God created mankind in his image in the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and I believe that nakedness represents that there's nothing between them. There's nothing obscuring them from one another. And so it's, it's in that that their relationship existed. That's the context of their relationship. 
Um, but then we understand that sin came, right? And, and so I'm going to shift a little bit, and we're going to talk about just sexual, sexual brokenness and sin. Um, you know, and I mentioned in my last message when I was talking about Esther how Satan is undermining and perverting everything of the Lord. Like, that is his purpose. He wants to distort and confuse and lie and, and to break that relationship, that trust that we have with the Father. And, and, and I made the comment that I think the closer something is to God's heart, the, the harder he goes after that. And I don't think it's a shock to anybody here that sex is clearly something that has been distorted and broken and, and maligned in our culture and in our society. Um, I heard this story a long time ago, and I don't, I don't know how true it is. Um, Ken may be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but, but I'm going to tell the story because I think the reality of the truth of the story makes a relevant point. Excuse me. Um, and he was talking about, like, knowing God and understanding counterfeit religions, understanding lies and deception. And, and he said, like, the, the federal agents that investigate counterfeit currency, their training does not involve them studying up on what a counterfeit is. They don't, you know, look at all the different, because there's too many. You know, there's too many variations on what could be. And their job is to understand and study and know U.S. currency right? And so they study it, and they know it so that when something is a counterfeit, they recognize it immediately, because they, they see it as a counterfeit, as fake. Um, and I, I do think it's an interesting picture of, um, like, sex in our culture. Like, there is an element of where there is so much counterfeit currency that we don't even know what the legitimate currency looks like at this point. Right, and, and that's not entirely true because God's given us his word and, and there are things that, I, I, if you read the Bible and you believe it, it's pretty black and white. And, and we can do dances around, you know, like create a theology where we twist and, and turn and, and make something that isn't. But there are certain truths that are in there that it's just black and white, right? But there is a depth of truth that I believe is part of this mystery that God isn't super clear on, that we are easily duped and we easily misunderstand his intention. Um, and it's fascinating to me, too, like when you look at what's presented about sex, when you look at the way people talk about sex, how the media portrays it, there's nothing about it that is an act of love. It is 100% self-gratification, self-fulfillment, and even at the expense of somebody else, right? And, and I've talked to the youth about this a lot. Like, in our culture, I think love is the most overused and watered-down word that we have. I mean, when I talk about loving ice cream, you know, and, and Amir and I, we love some ice cream, right? But is that what God's talking about with love? Do I really mean that I love, right? Is that the same as my love for Sophie? And, and, and I would argue that probably at least 90% of the time you could take somebody's use of the word love and replace it with lust and you would have a better understanding of what they're really saying, 
right? And, and we have a hang up with lust because there's the sexual connotation to it, right? But immediately behind the definition of sexual desire is a very powerful feeling of wanting something and a strong desire, right? And, and so, like, and, and I would differentiate the two from lust is an emotion, something we feel, whereas love is an action and it's other focused, right? I am not the beneficiary of my love. I benefit from my love of ice cream. Nobody else does, right? Um, but this is an important distinction because in our culture and in our society, we talk about love and, and everything's all, you know, love. And, and, and it's this cheap word that's just thrown about that, like, basically, I think love in our society means give, give someone everything their heart desires. Never say no. Indulge every whim. Right? And of course, a part of love, you want good things for the person you love. Like, again, it's that giving, right? Like, I want good things for my children. But I also know that some of what they want isn't good for them, which requires me to say no. Right? And, and I feel like this is really prevalent when it comes to... Um, sexuality, and especially with the whole LGBTQ community and, and the discussion around this, right? Like, you, you have these questions like, well, who am I to tell somebody who they can love and who they can't? And, well, if two people love each other, is it wrong? But, like, again, put the word lust in there because that's really what they're talking about. It's not love. It's what they desire. It's what they want. And... <clears throat> This is where, like, I think we really need to allow God and ask God to redeem our understanding of sexuality, our understanding of sexual expression. And, and I think it, you know, I mean, it's easy to look at the gay community and, and point to what we say is wrong. But I think it affects us as heterosexual Christians just as much. I think our understanding of sexuality and what God intended is equally broken. You know, and God clearly portrays sex as holy, right? And, and to clarify, I, I, as an English major, I love clarifying words, but that word holy means set apart, right? God talks about the Old Testament temple and, and, and he declared things holy. And what makes it holy, it was set apart for a specific sacred use. It was not your common everyday spoon that you use to eat and, you know, like, use that as a hammer when you're trying to put something up on the wall and like it had its intended purpose and it was set apart for that and and i believe god tells us that sex falls under that same category it is set apart and it's meant to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage relationship and it, and it's holy and we need to treat it as holy hebrews 13 4 says let marriage be held in honor among all and let marriage and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Um, so I want to go back into Genesis and, and talk specifically about sin and what it's done with our intimacy. And, and um, so we have this story of God creating Adam and Eve, and, and then you have the fall where sin enters in in Genesis 3. Excuse me. And with the introduction of, introduction of sin came the awareness of their nakedness. 
with the awareness came the introduction of shame. And with the introduction of shame came the need to hide and cover themselves. Or the desire, at least. It says in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, uh, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And then in verse 10, it says, I heard the sound, Adam is responding to God calling out for him. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And so, because of sin, shame has entered in, right? And we all experience shame. Like, it's, it's I think, inextricably linked with sin. We can't not experience shame at this point. And it's something, like, we are born into, and there's no escaping from it. Yeah, and, I, and I would argue that most people live a shame-based existence. And that looks like everything from, you know, the person who is just covered in shame, and they're the wallflower, and they want to just hide and, and not be seen, to the person who is overcompensating for their sense of shame, and, and they, like, through their accomplishments, they're trying to establish their worth and cover their shame, Right? And there's this, this element of, in that, like, I'm trying to bring value to myself so that I can stand before God and say, see, I'm not, I'm not all bad, right? Or is it, is it really, can I recognize that he loves me? But it's, it's interesting to me, like, I think as a society, we've turned a corner where instead of people recognizing shame and and living with that shame they've now started to declare their sin celebrate their sin and say i have no reason to be ashamed you know but in that moment in the garden when they sinned and god came looking for them it says god covered them in genesis 3 20, 21 it says the lord god made for adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them Right? God recognized their need to be covered. Right? And, and again, I, I believe this is a, a prophecy of Christ and his sacrifice for us. Right? God s- sacrificed an animal and covered them with the skin of that animal. And so there, even right here in, in Genesis 3, there's a picture of Christ and his sacrifice for us. Um, and... and I've, I've been talking to the youth a, a lot about sin over the past um, couple of months that I've been teaching. And, and I always go back to Genesis 3, right? Because it's the first place that sin is mentioned. And I think it really provides a lot of clarity because, you know, again, wanting to define things, it's hard sometimes to understand exactly what sin is. And, and is, it, is it the action or is it really the heart? Which I think God clarifies. But, you know, there's... Um, when I go back to that story, I don't think I'm, I'm reading something that isn't there, but I, I think it's fascinating when you look at the interaction with God and Adam and Eve, and, and he comes and he basically tells them, when you eat from this tree that I've told you you can't eat from, and, and there, the language is ambiguous. I don't know that God really was saying when you do this, but we know that God wasn't surprised by their disobedience, right? We know God knew they were going to do it. 
And, and there is this element when I read it that God is saying, when you do this, you're going to die. So there, there's this element of he is pronouncing a death sentence over them right there in the garden. And, and the fascinating thing to me about it is they then do sin. They do exactly what God told them not to do. And then God comes with the firing squad and the guillotine, right? No. God came and he starts calling to Adam, where are you? I'm looking for you. Where, where'd you go? Right, which is so counter to my understanding and my expectation with God. I expect to be slapped upside the head when I step out of line. I expect to be disciplined. I expect the punishment due for my sin. But that's not who God is. He calls out to them and he sought them. And so you have this shame has entered in, but God seeks them out and he covers their shame, right? Which is really a picture of forgiveness, right? God deals with our shame by taking it from us, by going to the cross. And, And so in a very real sense, we're now standing before God naked and without shame again, right? And this is disjointed for me. I I have a hard time separating my shame from the reality of my relationship with God. Um, And in reading reading and studying for this message, I was looking at different sources and and pulling some things together. And and I was looking at shame, and I came across this, this one writer made this comment. He said, most Christian authors offer two basic answers to our problem of shame. Just don't worry about the opinions of others. Or shame can be good for moral development. And he, he goes on, he says, Though I agree with these points, they have become pat answers that do not resolve the issue. Christians need a fuller, more nuanced understanding of shame. And I, I, don't, I don't really know like, what they were getting at or, or what their point is, but like, I would argue we don't need a nuanced understanding of shame. I, I have a pretty firm understanding of shame. What I don't have a firm understanding of is God's forgiveness, right? And, and as I've been going through this, like, understanding what God did for us. If the, the source I was pulling from Ephesians 5 in verse 27 it says, we are presented without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. Like that's how we are being presented as, as Christ's bride, right? And Yes, that's at the end times, but I think that's now too, right? I mean, we've talked, God has, Wallace has talked a lot in this church about forgiveness and about freedom, right? That there is nothing held against us. 1 Corinthians 5.21, I know you all know it by heart, right? There is nothing that is on me because he has taken it all on the cross, And Zephaniah 3.19, it says, Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Right? Like, if I really connect with God's forgiveness for me, does it not result in my praise of him? Like, I've had a lot of experience. I tell the kids a lot about my failings as as a kid, and especially as a student. Right? And all of these stories where, like, God has given to me something that I did not deserve. 
And, you know, I've shared my testimony before how I transferred into George Mason with a .9 GPA. And, and the whole story of how I got there and, like, God, I, I had to talk to the dean and God told me, be honest. And I had this battle of faith of, like, how can I be honest and yet accomplish my goal? And I went in and I was honest and, and God opened that door. And I walked out of that meeting dancing and celebrating because of what God did and not what I deserved. And in, in going through this message, like, God has been teaching me more about understanding this freedom, right? Because the reality is he knows me. I can't hide from him. I think I can, right? In my mind, there is still that, I'm still covering myself to the best of my abilities. I'm grabbing fig leaves everywhere I can to hide that part from me that I don't want to expose to God, right? And I put these barriers up, like, I'm not comfortable with you going there, Lord. But the reality is he's there. He knows it. He just wants me to be in line with what he already knows. And he wants me to get to the point that I drop it and I come. And there's this element of like, I see this in my marriage, right? Like, I've been married to Sophie for 30 years, and, and she knows me. And, and I, like, expose who I am to her, and she loves me, and she accepts me, right? And, and I'm not saying we don't deal with sin, but, like, she is very gracious to me, which then leads to this deeper intimacy where I can reveal more of who I am, right? But how much more with God? Like, Sophie will never know me to the depths that God knows me. God knows me better than I know my, I can't reveal myself the way God knows me, right? But yet, he calls me to himself. And like, in Romans 5, it talks about this incredible love of God that when I was his enemy, he died for me. Right, and so what do I have to hide from him? He knows me in the depths of my sin. And um, in also going through and preparing for this message, um, I, I felt like the Lord brought Hosea to mind. And I don't know if you know the story of Hosea, but he's one of the prophets and prophesying judgment over, over the nation of Israel. But it, it says in Hosea 1-2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take, for your, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Right? And I mean, that's a hard story, right? There's, there's no fairy tale romance. Disney's not making a movie about Hosea, right? And in, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 8, Hosea speaking, he says, Plead with your mother plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom for their mother has played the whore she has conceived them and has acted shamefully 
For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used, which they used for bail. And, like, it's, it's a hard truth that God was speaking to me in reading Hosea of, like, I am like Gomer. Right? The first time I read Hosea, the first time I heard the story, I was like, what is she thinking? Like she has this guy who has gone after her. He's done everything for her. He's provided for her. And she keeps going after these other lovers, right? And it's, and it's not like she was going after this romantic tryst that she loved this guy. And she's going after whoredom, right? The prostitutional relationships. And like, is that not the sex that is in our culture? It's cheap. It's transactional, it's anonymous, but yet that's what we go to over and over. And back to what I was saying about my relationship with God, like how many times has my relationship with God been sacrificed because of some cheap thrill? Because something is more shiny and more interesting to me in that moment. And, and I really think like we elevate the experience over the person. But then this is God's response to me, to us. In Hosea 2, 19, 20, and 23, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those who who were called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God, right? And again, we have this beautiful, redemptive story of what God has done. And to, to close this all out, following all this, we have Genesis 4, where um, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, but that Hebrew word for to know is yada, yada, something like that, um, yada. Um, but, and, and I was trying to research a little bit because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't speak Hebrew. Um, but I came across this one guy who was writing about it. And he said, the definition of this word also contains meanings similar to being undressed or revealed. And the word means to be made known, to become known, to be revealed, or to make oneself known. And he says again, this word has a connotation of nakedness, of not hiding or being able to hide. And he he goes on to talk about, like, in seminary, they talked a lot about that word, but it was always in this intellectual capacity, right? Like, we know God, and, and the word is used throughout the Bible in the context of knowledge. But here God is using it in the sense of Adam having sex with his wife, that he knew her right? Which just goes back to what we've been talking about with our intimacy with God, 
that he would know us. Um, and there's an element, too, of, of this relationship that we have with God post-fall, where this confession, that we enter into confession with God, we enter into communion with God. You know, and, and I really, in a lot of ways, I would liken confession to undressing, right? Where I, I am taking off all of my goodness, all of my goodness, all of the things that cover me, and, and coming into his presence in agreement with him, in communion with him. And I, and I talked about in, in the book of Esther, like that this picture of Esther with the king, and it's a picture of our relationship with God, right? And when she came to the king, to plead for her people, what she did was she invited the king into her presence, into a wine feast, into this banquet. And she didn't once talk to him about her needs. They just communed together. You know, which I think is this powerful picture of what we should do with God. Right? Like the reality is he has invited us into his presence. He has called to us to come. He has invited us as our lover to come right? And Sophie and I were talking, like, unrelated to this message, but in talking, she mentioned the word linger, right? And it, it struck me because I don't linger with God. You know, I mentioned I get up in the morning, I spend time with him, and I go about my day, and I'm gone, right? But do we linger with God? Because I really think he wants us to linger with him. You know, and, and worship is just so wrapped up in this too, right? Where there is just a celebration of who God is and coming into his presence and celebrating his presence with us. And um, I'll just wrap it up. Like this whole concept, again, I I believe God is telling us so much about our relationship with him. And for those of us that are married, asking God, again, to redeem our understanding and our expression of sexuality in our marriage. Because just like God talks about with communion, that we're proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes, we're proclaiming his resurrection, I I believe that our sexual expression within marriage is proclaiming this mystery of Christ in the church. And we have an opportunity to proclaim it to the world. When they look at our marriages, they should see a reflection of Christ. They should see how much God loves us. They should see his undying devotion for us. And when we talk about God, I would encourage you to think about talking about God as your lover. Um, this, this guy was talking about, the, um, talking about the love of God. This podcast Sophie um, uh, gave me, but he, he talked about the difference of Peter and John where Peter was proclaiming his love for God. I will follow you to the end of my days. I will die for you. I love you that much. And then he fell. But John's talk was, I am the apostle that Jesus loves.